Welcome to Talking Liberties with the ACLU of Illinois. I'm Ed Yaka, the Director of Communications and Public Policy. Well, if you've looked at any media lately, you know that we are nearing the 2022 midterm elections with millions of Americans already having cast ballots in early voting. Most of the coverage of the November 2022 elections have focused on control of the United States House and Senate and the personalities and issues in those races. But there is much more at stake, including here at Illinois. The truth is that the result of races for offices up and down the ballot will impact civil liberties for many of us. That is the reality of every midterm election. Yet voter participation in mid-year races tends to lag behind turnout for presidential elections. In recent decades, that gap has been significant, with approximately 60% of all eligible voters turning out to vote in a presidential election, a number that plummets to 40% in midterm elections. We want to focus on some of the offices that will be on your ballot for the 2022 midterm elections in Illinois and how those races could impact your civil liberties here. And to help us with this discussion, we're pleased to welcome back to Talking Liberties, the Director of Advocacy and Intergovernmental Affairs at the ACLU of Illinois, Kadeen Bennett. Kadeen, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, it's been a while since I've been invited. So it's great to be back reunited and it feels so good. <laughs> so, you know, I said in the intro that there's lots of issues and lots of races up and down the ballot. We're gonna to get to the races everybody's seeing commercials about and things like that. I wanted to kind of start a little bit down ballot and sort of talk about the importance of those. And, you know, a lot of people uh, across the state of Illinois will be electing county board members this year. And when we think of the county board, what, what kind of role can they have in terms of civil liberties or, or civil rights across the state? Yeah, so I guess I would start by saying that you know, one of the big things is budget. And I think budget connects with values for the county board and policies that they think are important. And some of the budget items that I think we're on the lookout for or that are really important from a civil liberties perspective is one around law enforcement funding and how much is funded, what's funded. One of the big things we've been seeing across the state is the proliferation of increase in privacy and surveillance devices used by law enforcement. So for example, automatic license plate readers, the use of those, and these are devices that law enforcement law enforcement entities use to basically scan license plates to see if they're a hit. So is it a license plate that's from overstaying up parking or if they are wanted for some kind of warrant of some kind? But the problem is that in between those things are tons and tons of other license plates that haven't done anything at all that law enforcement entities are able to collect and store. And that poses a huge civil liberties implication because if people know where you go, they know a lot about you. So, you know, is law enforcement getting more money for those kinds of privacy invasive devices? The other issue as we're like in this post-ops world is around abortion services and care. So one of the things that we've been pushing at the county level is that if folks are concerned about these issues, it's important to provide funding for folks who aren't able to access private health insurance or Medicaid insurance if they're seeking abortion care services. So that's 
another thing that's important. During COVID, we know of medical privacy has been an area in terms of whether or not local entities should, outside of the Department of Public Health, should have access to somebody's, you know, COVID status, for example. So county boards make policies like that as well. And then as it relates to gender-affirming care, it's another place where counties have the ability to decide what kinds of insurance they're providing to folks and whether or not that insurance provides coverage for both gender-affirming care and abortion care. Yeah, which and all of those are things that at that level, you know, people often don't think about as being part of the set of issues, but that budget process really does set, you know, and control a lot of values. Yeah. Yeah, the other thing that we see is budget, but also policy as it relates to the criminal legal system as it relates to jails, for example. So what are the policies that are there? We're hearing a lot of noise around the Safety Act, specifically the bond component to it. And that's a place where county boards are paying attention to those as well. So another position at the county level that we might talk about for just a moment is your county clerk. County clerks play a big role in elections. They do other things. Where where do you see that intersecting with civil liberties issues? I mean, I think elections, first and foremost, the ability to have elections where folks are able to access the ballot, either in person or by mail. And, you know, different counties approach that in in different ways. We'd want a uniform approach where everybody has full access. But I think there are times where that doesn't play out quite that way. So that's one space. In the intersection of voting and criminal justice issues, counties have under a law that we worked with a couple of other organizations around around voting in jail, that there is an obligation for counties to provide folks who are in pre-trial, so they haven't been convicted of a crime, the opportunity to vote. In some places like Cook County, it is in-person voting. In some places like other parts of the state, it would be getting a ballot. So that's a requirement that the counties are working closely with the sheriff's department to make sure that folks have that access to voting. The other place that we see that happening is in terms of licensing. It was really important in the context of same-sex marriage to have county clerks who are willing to follow the law to make sure that folks have the licenses that they need when we think about implementation of, of things around birth certificates for folks who are transgendered county clerks may have a role there as well and and i think the license the marriage license thing we should point out you know given some of the challenges we've seen at the supreme court around bakeries or websites or things like that, it is not unrealistic to think we might see a county clerk at some point try to challenge giving out a license. Is that is that your view as well? Yeah, I mean, with the post-op decision, I think so many things that we thought we kind of dealt with in Illinois are potentially up for grabs depending on a county clerk or even what happens with our Supreme Court here in Illinois. So let me, let, let's round out sort of thinking about county positions yeah and talk about sheriffs. I think when we think about policing, you know, a lot of times we think of our local police, you know, in the Chicago area, we think about our municipal police, but in a lot of the state, the most influential law enforcement person is that county sheriff. So how do you think a sheriff's office then can affect civil liberties and civil rights in places where really they have primacy? 
Yeah, I mean, we've seen that play out in terms of who's arrested and for what. We've seen instances where folks who are perhaps drug users or folks who are dealing with their addictions are arrested, kept in jail when they pose no flight risk, no danger risk. And they also, it results in a health risk to them because they're not able to get the treatment that they may need. We see in terms of the conditions of jail, like, you know, are people in safe clean spaces? Are they in spaces, we saw this especially during COVID, where there are a ton of folks in a small facility where essentially they're infecting each other potentially, and then they're going home and infecting people in their homes or their communities. So conditions are important. We've also, you know, been on the other end of negotiation with uh, the Sheriff's Association and things like that intersection of pregnancy and incarceration, where we've pushed for policies that wouldn't require pregnant folks to be on a top bunk and instead, for safety reasons, be at a bottom bunk. So things that not just the carceral parts of it, but how are people living and existing while they're in jail? You know, I think I read a statistic or, or maybe in talking about cash bail recently, a statistic that like 250,000 people a year are held in county jails. So the operation of those by the sheriff who oversees that in most places, that really is important. It affects a lot of people. It definitely does. And, you know, just going back to that intersection of folks who are in jail and folks who, who would be better placed in facilities to seek care for their addiction. I was talking to someone who operates a center for folks who are seeking treatment in downstate Illinois. And she was saying that one of the things that she was really excited about with the end of cash bail was that she has a long waiting list of people who want to get treatment. There are sometimes beds that are open, but because they're in a, a jail facility, they're not able to get out and access that care. And some of the reasons why they're in that jail facility is based on their addiction. So that cycle that exists. And then it costs the county money to have people in jail. And so the county sheriff, who is somebody who actually cares about real safety issues, so safety not just of the community, but the people as well, they're really important in terms of really prioritizing who should be in jail and who should not be in jail and exercising a level of discretion. So those positions are really, really important. The county sheriffs also have the ability to really, you know, what we've been seeing recently in as it relates to the Safety Act and ending cash bail, they've been on the other side of sometimes providing misinformation. That's really unfortunate because in some counties they're seen as like the truth teller folks. So if they're providing information that they either get from somewhere that's not a reliable source or or pushing that out, that can have real, real negative effects as well. So Kadeem, listen to to a couple of races that are getting a lot of attention. We have this situation where in two of our Supreme Court districts, so not every ballot across the state of Illinois, but in on several folks' ballots, they're going to have a race for the Supreme Court. Why are those Supreme Court seats important at the state level? We all talk about the U.S. Supreme Court, but why are they important at the state level? Just as we saw our national Supreme Court or the federal Supreme Court go from having a pro-choice majority to pro-choice minority, that possibility is here in Illinois, where there is the possibility that we could lose the pro-choice majority. And what that means is all of the work that we've been doing to make sure that Illinois remains a state where folks have access to full abortion rights is in jeopardy. So the similar to our Supreme Court, federal Supreme Court, 
these justices hear cases that come to them. So from lower courts all the way up to them, and they're able to decide whether things are constitutional, whether or not rights should be enforced or not. I mean, the power that they have is you know, at the state level, as powerful as our federal Supreme Court. So part of why we're really concerned about these races, there's that the second Supreme Court district and the third Supreme Court district, is that we want to make sure that the rights that we know that are important to us in Illinois, the rights that legislators have passed recently, especially on reproductive rights, will remain in place. We don't want to have a scenario where instead of following the what the law says, there are interpretations that take away the protections that folks are now coming into Illinois to seek as it relates to reproductive and specifically abortion access. It also potentially has implications for LGBT folks. So in terms of how we're interpreting, you know, our marriage equality laws, it has an impact in terms of what access trans people can have. And then outside of that, you know, these are folks who are also going to be deciding potentially cases as it relates to voting laws. You know, we've talked, Ed, about, you know, we're feeling really good about Illinois. We have an administration right now that, for the most part, there are places that we would want more, agree with certain civil liberties and constitutional principles. But the Supreme Court, it could change what our state looks like in terms of that kind of access. And we could be more like states that are surrounding us than the state that we are in right now. So even thinking about how they're thinking about voting laws, how they're thinking about anti-discrimination laws. I mean, everything could be up for grab in the state if the Supreme Court moves to the right, which is where we see a couple of the candidates are right now, where they're actively saying that they're not going to be true to some of the things that we think are important to us, including the right to access abortion. And not just what they're saying, but their history as well. So it's a, um, while we are nonpartisan, our focus is on who will stand with the constitution, the principles that are there. And it's a really scary time in terms of the Supreme Court right now. You know, let me put a kind of, to put a fine point on that, when we've talked on this podcast before about the passage of the Reproductive Health Act. But there are legal challenges to the Reproductive Health Act that have kicked around in state courts. Those are the kinds of things that you're talking about actually reaching uh, the Illinois Supreme Court. Yeah, so existing challenges and new challenges, or if we want to enforce, you know, we talked about the counties before and what county boards are able to do. If we have a Supreme Court that is predominantly anti-choice, then our ability to use the Reproductive Health Act to challenge the behavior of a state actor is in jeopardy. You know, if we went to court, would we get a a fair ruling based on the law versus based on people's personal beliefs? There are other measures that have passed, like for contraception and, as you said, LGBT things. All of those are really the kinds of issues that could come before an Illinois Supreme Court, and they would have the right to interpret how those laws fit under the Illinois Constitution. Yeah, that's correct. And, you know, I think a lot of folks are more aware of what's happening at the federal level with, you know, national organizations that's been kind of putting in the pipeline these cases that would go to a Supreme Court that's favorable to them to roll back rights. I mean, I think at the state level, we know of organizations that are, you know, looking at that pipeline right now. So if the Supreme Court were to change, then they would be even more aggressive in in pushing, challenging good laws to see a different result. I mean, and that's partly why not just the Supreme Court races, I know you're probably going to get to this, the thing that, I know, for some of us that kind of keeps us up at night, like, what are we, what will we do is if we lose the Supreme Court, 
and if the AG's office is not one who follows the rule of law, and if we have a governor who has said over and over again that they're not for choice or for the protection of LGBT folks, I mean, that could really, again, change what our state looks like. We'll get there, I promise. I know. Uh, I know. <laughs> but for, for those folks who don't have those Supreme Court races, they're not from those two districts where there are Supreme Court races, there are lots of races in ev on everybody's ballot, either to elect or retain judges. And I wonder if you could talk both about those races and a little bit about, because I think we often hear this, about the resources that people can access in order to ensure that they're voting in those races with some knowledge or information. Yeah, I mean, I have folks, um, including, you know, my partner who I live with, who's like, oh, what's the point of judges? It's so confusing. Why do we do it? Like, what's the point? I should just, you know, take through. It doesn't matter. And those races matter a lot. You know, judges get to decide like the sentencing for someone, they decide if somebody is able to go out after they've been arrested while they're preparing for trial, if they're able to leave jail, or if they don't, they have the ability to within a range decide how long somebody stays in prison or jail. I mean, they have a lot of power in our criminal legal system. If you care about criminal justice reform issues, you know, the judicial branch is really, really important. And if you're an ACLU voter or an ACLU person, criminal justice issues are really uh, a key thing. I think in terms Terms of some of the resources that are out there, a number of places, including different bar associations, they put out guides, there are judicial guides, you know, different organizations like Planned Parenthood, Personal PAC, they put out guides for judicial races. I think it's really important to do your research because if you're not sure about whether or not a judge is worth retaining, looking up the resources that are out there to figure that out is important. Yeah, and I think we should say that while there are a number of organizations that do that work and in Cook County that sometimes in the other counties, you have to dig a little bit, but that digging is worthwhile and talking to people because as you point out, these, these races really do matter. Yeah. Okay, so we're all familiar also, and I think we hear a lot about the members of Congress, you know, go to Washington DC and vote on these range of federal issues. We have a US Senate race and all of the house races that are up this year. In many ways, you know, as we often talk about, they're creating sort of a floor for approaches and that the, the state can take a different approach. So I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit, and I know this is really in your wheelhouse, talk a little bit about the state legislature and why state senators and state reps really make such a difference. Yeah, I mean, state reps and senators and, you know, state elected officials are becoming more and more important. There's the ability to provide protections at the state level that we may not be able in Congress. And in Illinois, especially, the state legislature has been a place that we've gone to to really protect our folks who live in Illinois, citizens of Illinois, in a wide variety of areas. So for um, reproductive access. So as you mentioned before, you know, you know, reproductive health and access that includes the right to have a child or not have a child, the right to contraception, the right to, you know, those basic things that when it comes to, you know, making decisions about our body and our families, the right for folks who are, who are in part of the LGBT community to get married, like that's 
protections that our state has been able to offer, privacy protections. I mean, we've done a lot of work in terms of limiting law enforcement's use of privacy invasive devices. People may have heard about our Biometric Information Protection Act, which you know is a limitation on companies' ability to just collect our biometric information without notice and consent in terms of criminal justice protections and pushing back on bad laws, the state legislature has been a place for that. So if you think about police regulation, that's been a place where outside of the use of privacy invasive devices, we recently passed a law that limits law enforcement's use of force. So all of the things that we think are important to us, the state legislature, they're able to provide that protection. What we do know, and I think from my early times of being a lobbyist to now, having a a legislature that's aligned with civil liberties values makes a huge difference in terms of how long it takes to pass a law and the ability to hold that law in place. So they're not just passing legislation, they also have the ability to repeal things that are problematic. They're also the opportunity to, you know, be a check and balance. So we talked about digital races, there's an executive branch, but the legislature also provides kind of a check and balance there. When we're working on the Reproductive Health Act, one of the things that we were able to do is to get legislators from other states, I think it was like Georgia, maybe um, Mississippi. Missouri. Missouri, to talk to our legislators to essentially say, you know, you have the capacity to provide protections that we don't have the capacity to provide. And it's really important for you all to take action. We were able to get that law passed, but again, it's we don't take it for granted because while we have, you know, people think about Democrats and Republicans, you know, we have a supermajority of Democrats. So that means civil liberties bills can go pretty easily. It goes like clockwork. And the reality is, no matter what the party is, doesn't mean that it's a guarantee of the value. And folks may say, well, if you have Democrats, they're the ones who do the right thing all the time. We've had scenarios where we've relied on Republicans to push back against bad privacy laws. So I cannot say enough how important it is, even if you're in a district where you're like, oh, my person's great. They have no shot of losing. It's really important to vote and vote for those races. I think last election period, there were some races that were won by like 10 votes, 15 votes in the really close races. And I think now we're looking at races where, you know, legislators who beat Republicans to get into that position who were pro-choice, and that was a thing they ran on, they're now being challenged at a high level. So I think getting out the vote is really important. I'd also say that, you know, we talked about judges and county board members and county clerks. It is so important not to stop filling out your ballot once you get to the state's uh, senator and representative race. The down ballot places are becoming more and more critical because, as I mentioned, um, as compared to what's happening at the federal level, the state level is is becoming a more critical place to have protections or roll back against attempts to get rid of those protections. Those lower races as well, those down ballot races, like they're becoming as critical as well. The people who are in control at the very, very local level have a lot of power. It's different power than the state rep and the state senator, but it's power nonetheless. I think we'll have to come back and do an episode of this next year to talk about like those races for, you know, uh, local sure. elections yeah. for, for school board, for park district board, because we are seeing those crop up in a whole host of different ways. For sure. So let's talk about some big statewide races then. And Let's start with the governor, which I think we recognize the role the governor has in the legislative process. But what are some other ways that, from your perspective, 
who's governor makes a difference in terms of policies that impact civil liberties? Yeah, I mean, you know, the governor who's the person in charge of the executive branch, they not just have the ability to sign legislation or veto legislation, but they set a policy agenda for the state. So in terms of what are the things that are most important, what are the values we have as a state? And they have kind of a pulpit to be able to spread that throughout the state and nationally. I think the other place where it really intersects with our work is who's in charge of the different departments and agencies. So for example, we on our legal side spend a lot of time challenging the Department of Corrections, the Department of Juvenile Justice, the Department of Child and Family Services, CCFS. So who's in charge is really important. We've seen scenarios, for example, with the Department of Juvenile Justice, where we're able to work together to have a better juvenile justice system than we had maybe 10 years ago. The fight is always continuing because we are ever vigilant in our work. And we've also seen, you know, where we've been stuck in some departments where we will be in a place of continually fighting to make sure that the needs of our clients are met. And, you know, DCFS and DOC are two of those places where who's in charge makes a difference and what the commitment is of the administration to really fight for, for change that not just momentary change, but long lasting change. We saw with the pandemic, the role of who's in the Department of Public Health makes a difference as well in terms of having policy that's evidence-based versus emotionally based. Who's in charge of the State Board of Education for some of our work around sex education and making sure that all young people feel affirmed in the education they're getting, not just for sex ed, but also young people who are LGBT, um, who are affirmed in, in their identity by what they're hearing from schools and what that value is there. So let's move on then, and you would kind of forecast this, but the Attorney General's office, this is another place where in a lot of ways, what they do has a huge impact on civil liberties and and protections of civil liberties across the state. Yeah, I mean, I think of it like we pass laws, well, the legislature passes laws, we encourage them, we draft laws that we hope that they pass, the governor signs the laws, and then once the bill becomes laws, they have to be effectuated. And so I see the AG's office as a really important role to implement the laws that we have, if they're not being implemented well by other actors that they're job is to make sure and enforce the implementation. And then what we've seen a lot is for them to defend laws that are being challenged by folks. I was at a meeting recently with folks from the AG's office and their person who's in charge of, I think his title is civil defense, was talking about all of the laws that they're fighting to make sure continue to be in effect. And it was like the list of the ACLU greatest hits. I mean, it was, you know, the Healthcare Right of Conscience Act, the Reproductive Health Act. I mean, and on the one hand, I guess we're doing good in terms of, you know, our laws are, are that good that the other side wants to challenge them. But it's important to have an AG who's committed to making sure that those laws um, are able to be in place and to push back against those challenges. The flip side is if we have an attorney general who, for their own personal beliefs, so it's not based on what the Constitution says or the law of the land, if they decide not to challenge those things, then we lose the ability to enforce the laws and people lose the ability to rely on them to make sure that they're able to really experience the rights that 
were granted under these laws. So I think again about the Reproductive Health and Access Act. If somebody challenges the RHA, which they've done, and the AG is like, yeah, fine, whatever, go for it. And uh, nobody steps in to take on that role, then what does that mean for the folks who are going to be harmed in, in real ways? And then the AG's office plays other important roles throughout the system, like in terms of local transparency through enforcing FOIA laws, and really even at the federal level in terms of deciding which amicus briefs before the Supreme Court decide sign on to to kind of express the will of the, the people of Illinois or the majority of the people of Illinois. So it does really have a role in like all elements and kind of all levels of government. They definitely do, yeah. Okay, last office we'll talk about, uh, Kadeen, the Secretary of State's office for the first time in many years is going to be vacant and there's a contested election there. Is there a civil liberties implication to that office? Yeah, I mean, we have saw the role of the Secretary of State's office in terms of the automatic voter registration, for example, that they were a key player there. So they have policies around the issuing of driver's licenses and other IDs. But some of the places where there is some intersection is, so for example, as it relates to folks who are undocumented, they were a key partner in making sure that those folks have the ability to have identity documents. And that was really important, including driver's licenses. We We've seen the importance that that office plays as it relates to folks who are transgender to be able to have the documents that reflect their gender identity. So folks may think of it like, oh, that's just where I go to get my license. But in terms of who is able to get a license or as some kind of identity document and to be able to do it in a way where they're not feeling like less than because of their identity, like those are two places that's been really important. The other place is around the fines and fees issues where they've been a partner as well in terms of looking at policies that reduce the possibility of somebody losing their license or their identity card because of their inability to pay fines and fees. Again, it continues to be a very important kind of under the radar office. And you know we've worked with them closely in the past and hopefully whoever is in charge continues to see the value of their work from a policy perspective, not just in terms of you know just being a place to, to get your license, but the who and how and making it easier for folks as well. You know, and I, I always think with that, that the Secretary of State's office was key to creating those driving documents for, for immigrants and newcomers. And then they also stepped up when Trump was elected and people were concerned about that information getting into federal hands to saying that they would protect it. So that role really does, who's there, who sits there and what their values are really does make an incredible amount of difference given all that data they have about people. For sure. So Ed, to put a question back on you, I know that part of- We don't do that on this podcast, but you go ahead. We will today. I know, well, two questions. One, I know that part of your job is looking at what's happening at the federal level in terms of who's running for office. So kind of flipping the question back on you, why are those roles important? I think for a lot of people, they're like, oh, we're good in Illinois. Should we pay attention to who's representing us in Congress? Can you talk a little bit about why those races are important? Sure. Number one, what happens in Illinois will help determine as to who actually controls the U.S. House and the U.S. Senate. The number of people who are sent from one party to another will will make a difference. And, you know, the, the reality is on many civil liberties issues at the federal level, much more than we see at the state level, there is a dramatic difference in terms of civil liberties protections. Remember that the Republican Party has promised in the Senate 
that they will move a national ban on abortion if they get a majority. Now, the president would would veto that, but that's in place. I think being able to be sure that you have representatives in Congress who are committed to issues like voting, to fundamental civil rights, and to LGBTQ protections, which on the national level are going to be so important as we see in many states kind of a race to the bottom on some of those things to try to figure out how hard you can make it for people to get gender affirming care or to to access abortion care or to access the ballot. And I think thinking about who we send to Congress is a way for Illinois to take these values that we've enshrined at the state level that you've been talking about and really help protect people from a variety of other states. I think that's one way to think about those votes, even when it seems like, hey, we're all good here and we have folks who go to Congress and do good for us. We're actually helping things nationally by continuing to vote in that way here. I know this is probably not what you want, but just a couple more questions that come to mind. You know, I I have been guilty at points of feeling that Congress, what are they doing? What are they going to do? I mean, it feels like they've been stuck in gridlock for a long time. So again, if there's somebody who's like, oh, I could vote for that person in Congress, but what's the point? Will Congress ever get its act together? Does it actually make a difference? You know, what would you say to that person? So what I would say is, is that the only way Congress will ever act to do the things that you want is by sending people there who reflect your values, not by sitting out the election or not by not participating or voting for someone else as a protest. Those things are never actually going to move us forward. And the second thing is, of course, that we have actually seen Congress at various times make progress whether it was through the passage of the ACA or Obamacare, whether it's through the passage of some of the measures over the past couple of years. You know, we've got a chance to do things like ending the Hyde Amendment over the next year that bans the use of Medicaid funding across the country on abortion care. We built that protection in in Illinois. We have the chance to like strengthen voting rights across the country. All of those things can be done, but they'll only be done They'll only be done if there are people there who are committed to doing that work and not engage in various sorts of other things that aren't productive and don't get things done or simply say no. And so, you know, that would really be my response to those folks. And I think that's a great point to make because I think about some of the folks who ended up in the General Assembly before we passed the Reproductive Health Act, for example. Some of those folks were in districts where folks thought, no, they can never win. A a pro-choice position could never be there, but it required people to vote, vote consistently and elect pro-choice people to get there to make the changes that folks were interested in. Um, My final question to you is, where do you go to get information about who to vote for? Where are your go-to places? And folks may not know, but Ed and I have this running thing about how he actually reads newspapers, real newspapers, and you know, social media can sometimes be a place to get info for other people, maybe me, but who knows? I'm just curious for the analog folks, where do you get? Yeah. I get all my information on Twitter. No. Uh... <laughs> Old Twitter or new Twitter? <laughs> so... So for me, it's a couple of different things. Almost every newspaper that does an endorsement 
beyond the endorsement, you can often look at the questionnaire that they give to candidates beforehand. And when the candidates fill those out and send them back, which they're much more likely to do than the ones we send candidates from time to time, I don't know why they feel that way. Some good responses. We did get ourselves some credit. Yes. But you know, one of the things that I find is those often provide a, a lot more level of detail in what candidates say than what you see on a 30 second commercial or just on some story in the newspaper. And then the other thing is oftentimes is just talking to people. You know, we're fortunate, obviously, in that we get to talk to a lot of people who have a lot of information and a lot of background about, you know, what folks think who are running for office. But I think that for me, it's it's really through trusted news sources, trusted places that I know that I can go and and look for data and look for information about people's past votes and past records and what their commitment is just to feel like I have more of a background and more information than just going and voting because somebody has an initial behind their name, a D or an R or whatever. I think voting has to be a much more impactful thing. And then, of course, you know, you really do have to look at someone's actual record and what they've done and what they've accomplished and, you know, where their values lie. So I, I got to push back and ask you the same question. I know you joke, but like, what do you think of in this day and age as places that people can go? I mean, I, for me, I think about what are the issues that are most important? Are there organizations who do work on those issues? And what are they saying? And I think it's important to not just stop there. I think, as you were saying, doing some independent research as well, because you may have somebody who says, you know, I'm great on pro-choice issues, but where are they on things like criminal justice reform and policing? So I think for me and for, I hope for all of our ACLU voter folks to think through what are the issues that are most important to us? Think about the organizations doing work on those issues. What are they saying? And I do think you're right, looking at people's records and make makes a difference and their performance. Because I think we've seen examples of folks who say the right thing when they're running for office and their values don't align once they're in office in terms of the policies that they promote and the the, the way that they vote. So as we close out, you know, we've talked about this and We've talked about all these races, all the way up and down the ballot with all of these issues. What do you say to the person who's listening who's like, yeah, I just don't know, it's the midterms, you know, it's not voting for the president. I'm not voting against some candidate for president that I really dislike. What do you say to people to inspire them to go out and vote? One, I would start with the fact that the ability to vote is such an important right that even people in our surrounding states throughout the US, they don't have the ability to easily go out to vote. There are people in Illinois who I think were worried about whether or not they'd have the ability to vote and to face roadblocks to that voting. So I think coming back to the idea that if you care about the constitution, if you care about civil liberties, then voting is just an important step to take. It's kind of like brushing your teeth every day or flossing. It's, it should be part of what you do. And it doesn't matter if there's a president at the top or not. And second, I would say that these folks in these different offices, they are making policy decisions on your behalf in terms of every aspect of your life. So if you care about the civil liberties issues we've talked about, they have a say there. If you care about things like garbage going to be picked up, are we going to have enough money to, you know, run our city, run our county, you know, those positions have that power as well. And 
if it's not enough for you to think about yourself, think about the folks who are at the margins of our state. They really, 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 really re rely on your vote. And we see, um, as I mentioned before, like it's not a joke that there are some races that are won by 10 votes, five votes, there are recounts. I mean, it's really, really important. And I know that there are some people who think, well, my legislator, you know, I used to live in Kelly Cassidy's district. It's like, nobody's running against her. Do I actually need to do anything? But think about, while she may not have a candidate, for example, there are folks at the lower than her. We talked about that before, where that makes a difference. And to not take anything for granted. I feel like I learned in the election where we got President Trump that we can't take anything for granted. It's not over until it's over. So why not vote? In most places, you still get that awesome sticker. So it's just important to, to take this action. It's interesting you say that because I always think about back when we were going through the campaign to win marriage equality through the legislature and that last day and those last votes and sitting in the gallery with our colleagues, Danielle and Susie from downstate Illinois, and then thinking about their joy that day and then their concern the night that Donald Trump was elected. Yeah. You know, it makes a difference who goes into those seats for real people's lives. Yep. You know, we've got a range of things we need to both protect and, and get moving forward. And the only way we're going to do that is with people who share our values. Yeah. And I think a mantra is like, we want to, in some ways, hold the line, want to hold the line on the protections that we have in Illinois. And to keep in mind that as it relates to abortion care specifically, it's not just for us in Illinois, it's for our surrounding states as well. So vote like your rights depend on it because it actually does. Well, Kadeen, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us today. I want to thank Kadeen Bennett for joining us for this important discussion today. And I want to remind all of you that there is still time to register and to vote before the November 8th election day. Early voting in Illinois is open. At least one place in every county where you can register and vote right up until 7 p.m. on November 8th when the polls close. If you have a mail-in ballot, fill it out and return it as soon as possible. If you have particular questions, feel free to email us at ACLU of Illinois, all one word, at aclu-il.org, and we'll answer any that we can. If you have problems at the polling place, call the Election Protection Hotline at 1-866-687-8683. Again, that's one 866-687-8683. Please get out and vote your values in this election. Thank you for listening to Talking Liberties. Talking Liberties is a production of the ACLU of Illinois. Colleen Connell is our executive director. Kimberly Kozeel is the producer of this podcast. Again, make sure to get out and vote, and we'll see you next time on Talking Liberties.